What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's podcast, I have none other than Rachel Kushner, the author of The Flamethrowers and now of The Mars Room. To introduce The Mars Room, Kushner writes, The Mars Room is not a middling or mediocre strip club, but definitely the worst and most notorious, the very seediest and most circus-like place there is. This is from the perspective of 29-year-old Romy, a stripper who is accused of murdering her stalker. I recorded with Rachel from The Wing in New York. For so long, I've wanted to interview Rachel Kushner after reading Telex from Cuba and The Flamethrowers and so much of your fiction in The New Yorker and everywhere. So you're here, you just touched the marble table. (laughs) Indeed I did. And commented on the beautiful pink walls. Um, but we're here to talk about the Mars room, which couldn't be set probably anywhere more different than the room we're sitting in. Um, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'd love you to explain what Chowchilla is and what it was like, um, to come upon this place for the first time. Sure. Well, of course, in my novel, I have a fictional place um, and prison, Stanville, um, <clears throat> which in a way is loosely based on Chowchilla, but the town of Stanville is not the town of Chowchilla. It's, um, it's a Central Valley town, but it would be difficult for a reader to know. It's, it's not based on a very specific town, so it's not meant to be immediately recognizable, although um, I consider it very much true to these small towns in the Central Valley, which are very economically depressed places, partly because of the drought. And so there's a lack of water. So the farming industry is suffering a little bit. And also because the people who live in the towns are mostly people who do precarious labor working as migrant pickers on the farms. And the farms themselves have become highly mechanized um, over the last couple of decades. So there's less work for people. Um, But Chowchilla is a real place. 
um, that I visit regularly because it is the site of the largest women's prison in the world, uh, which is called Central California Women's Facility, but known by its informal shorthand as Chowchilla. And I started going there in... 2014, so four years ago now. Um, it's been a long four years in a way. I go there roughly maybe once every couple of months as a volunteer with a human rights organization called Justice Now, uh, which tries to prevent, uh, document and prevent human rights abuses in the prison. And the whole experience of going to Chowchilla is it's really interesting for me and intense emotionally because I mostly sit and talk to friends who are serving life sentences or life without possibility of parole um, about their lives and have developed friendships with these people. And they have mentored me about the reality of their lives in prison and the various predicaments and traumas and events in their lives that have led to these very serious convictions. And in exchange, I mentor them, for instance, on writing if they're interested in that, or I try to help them with legal assistance on the outside, or just emotional support or writing letters for people's file if they're trying to um, get together paperwork for a commutation from the governor, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess Chowchilla for me has been um, a place I go to to try to follow and track people who have been all but condemned by the criminal justice system in the state of California. And it's pretty far from Los Angeles. It's a five-hour drive. So when I go there, I leave the night before my visit is scheduled and I stay at a motel in the town. And so it's a whole experience of driving the long route from LA up the Central Valley. And when I'm on that route, I think about the bus ride that goes every Thursday and takes 60 women, so 60 new state commitments, who leave from Southern California and are overwhelmingly people who are from urban metropolitan Southern California, either LA County or San Bernardino or Riverside. And they are taken into this rural, far-flung site where they are surrounded by industrial farming, mostly almond farming. And on that bus ride, the windows are blacked out and... What what did what do women talk about when they recall that that one trip that they know they may never come back to their home? Right. Well, oh, I should say the windows are blacked from the outside. So if oh, you're on the so highway, they can see out. Yeah. So oh, if you're on the few. highway, well, right. Well, but except what's so chilling about it is that it's to invisibilize them before they've even been locked away, I think. I mean, it's effectively that, whether that is the purpose or not. I'm sure, you know, the sheriff's department is the um, department that manages that transportation, and they would probably have be able to cite all kinds of security reasons why they don't want people on the outside to be able to look in. But one profound effect of it is that it allows middle-class people to keep their gaze averted from those in our society who are trapped in the criminal justice system. Um, and and so in that, a sense yeah. is what I was 
trying to trespass in my own life to look and to see rather than to be yet one more person on the highway who doesn't look and knows she can't look. But people can see out of the bus. Oh, I was imagining that they couldn't see out as well. Right. And that even felt more horrible. Well, there are instances of that. I mean, there, you know, there's this famous supermax uh, federal prison called Florence where when they move, that's where Ted Kaczynski's held, when they move people into that and out of that prison or move them inside of the prison from floor to floor, they are blindfolded so they can't see where they're going. So they don't know where they are. I mean, and that is just, a, you know, a crazy level of security detail that is not just about preventing escape, but preventing an attack from outside the prison that would lead oh, to an I escape. See. Yeah. This, it's so complicated, but just going back to that idea. It's an industry. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll get into that too. But having it so that the general public don't have to acknowledge or be confronted by people who not everyone has done violent crime going to this prison or it's a maximum security prison. Well, uh, Chachilla, you're asking yes. about? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, so actually in California... According to um, <clears throat> various different outlets, um, by statistics, 90% of people serving time in California prisons have been convicted of what this state considers to be, quote, unquote, not my language, serious violent felonies. So this idea that has kind of been perpetuated somewhat recently in the media that there are a lot of nonviolent, low-level drug offenders in American prisons is actually not really true. Mm -hmm. And um, it feels slightly discomforting to be someone who's pushing against that because it feels like like people like Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, are fighting this wonderful fight, and, and she is. And that has been important work to raise awareness about this system that has so many levels of racial bias to it, you know, and she has pointed that out and done amazing work as a lawyer and, and an analyst of the system. However, her book does sort of give you the sense that there um, are a lot of nonviolent people who are in prison and those are the people that we should be worried about and letting out. Most people in California prisons have committed uh, pretty serious acts or been convicted of them. And um, I'm concerned about those people. I'm mm -hmm. concerned about that 90%, primarily because there isn't really a dialogue of sympathy and an idea that we should be standing up for the actual guilty. Instead, I feel like the conversation among more like middle-class educated people tends towards sympathy for those who can be regarded as relatively innocent, but most people are not. Most people in prison have done something to get there, but when you talk to them about their lives and what they've done, they aren't just defined by that one act. They are complex, whole, you know, fascinating individuals who literally always, I mean, to a person, anecdotally, I have not met anyone in prison who I think had a nurturing childhood. And people in prison are overwhelmingly poor people. So like 
among the poorest layers of the population in the way our society is structured by class, of course, being poor doesn't mean you're automatically gonna go to prison. There is absolutely a factor of chance and a certain degree of decision-making that goes into impulsive acts. But when you talk to people about the things that they've done, um, their lives take on a certain logic where you see that, well, where I see that I'm not capable of judging people for the acts that they've committed because I don't know what it was like to grow up as them. So I'm pretty interested in advocating for guilty people who have committed violent crimes, just to put it crudely. Well, in your book, the main character, Romy, I felt I mean, through the book, I identified with her and there's this amazing line um, when she talks about um, she might be the guilty party, she might have committed this crime, but she's still the victim. Oh, right, Which yeah. is one of the most powerful lines and I felt like having absorbed all these women's stories that I absolutely could place no judgment on any of them. I think if men, you know, abuse women... I think I would want to kill them back. <laughs> well, right. So Romy commits a crime in the book. Um, it's a pretty brutal murder, I think, frankly, which the reader finds out about it in is. detail I I just... from the perspective of the victim very late in the book. And um, I actually have a lot of sympathy for him. Um, but I, I have sympathy for all of my characters. I mean, they, they're they sort of ventriloquized versions of me to some degree. Oh, and he's a stalker, so... Yes, but maybe, well... What, what, do you think that's her perspective? Like, we also have to remember that some of, a lot of the book is from her voice, so... Yeah. Do we, be, are we, do we believe her? Well, when when the book is told from his perspective, I think it's absolutely from his perspective without any yeah. interference from her. And maybe I want to say something about him and then I'll Please. go back to what she said about being his victim. Um, I knew I wanted to write this character, Kurt Kennedy, into the book when I had this thought. And maybe it sounds a little pompous, but the thought felt like an epiphany. Um, and the epiphany was about somebody who becomes obsessed with somebody else. And we all, well, maybe not we all, but um, I can say that I know what it feels like to be the object of somebody else's obsession, to be stalked. Um, it happened to me when I was a very young woman and it was profoundly destabilizing um, and took me many, many years to recover from. And I only say that maybe because it is, the backdrop to the sharpness of what I felt like was an epiphany, which was I was thinking about this character, Kurt Kennedy, and I had a thought. And the thought was, he's not stalking this woman to scare her or terrorize her. That's not why he's doing it at all. He's just trying to get what he thinks he absolutely cannot live without. And it seemed very clear to me Suddenly, perhaps to everybody else, it's an obvious thought, but to me, it never had been before because I had been so purely on the other side of that divide. And I felt a kind of compassion for him because he doesn't know what kind of damage he is um, causing for her. He is desperate to track her. 
And I think a lot of people have experienced that in degrees. Mm -hmm. You know, it's in a way, it's what infatuation is, is to want to know about the life of somebody who doesn't want to know the life of you. So there's this, you know, I'm thinking about this person and where is that person right now and who are they hanging out with and what are they up to is almost like a very mild version of what the so-called stalker is doing in terms of how their mind is tracking and what they're focusing on. And so he just focuses on her in a very intense way. Um, about her and her guilt, I actually wanted her to seem unequivocally guilty. It's just that every single murder that I've talked to people about inside prison has a logic to it. People don't just go insane and kill somebody else. There's always a reason. You know, they got inducted into a gang, let's say. And then they're like in a war with another gang, right? And we've all seen like movies about Italian mobsters and then it becomes like sexy to have to knock off a guy who's, you know, messing with the mob or something. But somehow if it's a world that one is not familiar with from entertainment, if it's mm. like Latino gangs in East LA, then it seems more demonic and it isn't. It's a turf war. So, you know, that's another example or maybe like somebody who, um, has had their heart brutally broken and then it, it's a crime of passion and it's a terrible thing and they shouldn't have done it. Um, and I'm not at all justifying violence, but when you talk to people about their lives, you start to see the logic and what prepared them over the long stretch before they committed an act of harm. Like what sort of harm they experienced before they ever hurt another person. And so to me, I see Romy in this manner, like she did commit an act mm -hmm. of harm, but it's logical for the reader because they feel close to her because she's open about her being his victim. I think that anybody who gets a life sentence is structurally made a victim of the California Department of Corrections. And in a way it's, um, it's short-sighted of her to say it, but it's also true. Even if you've committed a horrific act that has harmed not only another person, but you know that person's family and friends, their community, once you have been sacrificed by the state and are meant to pay back for your act of harm with your life, then you are a victim. Was there a particular case that you ever thought about in terms of um, having Romy have that sentence? Well, not exactly a particular case in terms of like her situation and her life and her crime. I mean, Romy is very familiar to me because I made her um, grow up in my neighborhood mm -hmm. and among my friend group. Um, and in a way, I partly did that as an homage to many people that I've known whose lives have turned out differently than mine. And in particular, one person who did go to prison and then later died. But um, her actual sentence, um, to be perfectly candid, is the sentence of another friend of mine, but who couldn't be more different than Romy in almost every way. Uh -huh. um, it's a woman named Christy Clinton Phillips who was mentioned in that profile in The New Yorker and met Dana and um, was 
sentenced as an adult when she was a child. Her crime was committed when she was 15. And um, she was sentenced at 16 and sent to prison and is now 31. And um, she was one of the first people who was convicted as an adult after this proposition in California called Proposition 21 had passed, which um, allowed children to be prosecuted as an adults, as adults. And um, they couldn't technically give her life without possibility of parole for her crime because that has to be what's called a special circumstances crime, like committed in the act of robbing somebody, et cetera. Um, it was a murder, but she wasn't robbing the person. So what they wanted to, what the judge wanted to do in sentencing her was give her effectively life without possibility of parole. So he gave her two life sentences not to be served concurrently, quote unquote. So they're consecutive. And then she had um, a six year enhancement. It was a weapons enhancement for the weapon that was used. Um, so, so yeah, and so I, I but I, I've known other people who've had multiple life sentences and many women who've had been given life without, uh, two very close friends who have life without possibility of parole. So m more than it being about Christie's crime and her sentence, um, the sentence for me is part of what this engagement was as um, a project in my life which was ruminating on what it means to have to pay back the state with your life. And like why it is that we do that in the United States. I mean, but it wasn't really like, I didn't have a message. I wasn't no. trying to like shame the system or have moral like it doesn't feel outrage like or anything like that. Yeah, I hope not because it was so much more personal for me. Like, and it, I, I thought also about more abstract things like theologically and philosophically in terms of Christianity um, because in Christianity there's this concept called mercy, but the state doesn't offer anything like that. It does seem more like revenge. I mean, I think that in California, historically, the goal is to incapacitate, which is to remove people from society to try to increase public safety. Um, but a lot of these people probably will never commit another crime. Um, there was a circumstance to the one thing, and like in Europe, if you commit a murder, you go to jail for, to prison for you know maybe 10 or 15 years, and that's a really long time to contemplate and think about what you've done, life seems like something else. And so I really wanted to ruminate and think into that and not to answer questions, but, you know, to examine them, to examine what that means for the person. And I can't speak for somebody who's had that experience, but I think that there was value for me as a citizen of the state, as an Angelino in California, as a woman, as a person, to think into somebody else's predicament. And to acknowledge that once people go out of our sights, they're still human beings that need our attention. So another character in the book, Doc, um, yeah. who's a cop who's also a contract killer. Yeah. Um, I think you've talked about how he was perhaps one of the first characters that came to you. Yeah. And how did he 
conjure himself, you know, into your imagination? By magic. No, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I, I, I love Doc. I mean, I'm, not everybody's comfortable with that character. Um, I, in fact, he makes some people profoundly uncomfortable, but maybe that's a good thing. Um, I had met a guy when I was inside of a maximum security prison called uh, Sacramento State um, on a what's called a sensitive needs yard. And I met this guy who is a, actually a, a, was former LAPD. Um, my cop in the book is from the Rampart Division, which has its own notoriety, obviously. Um, the, the cop that I met was from Hollenbeck Division, which has a similar notoriety. That's the division that patrols Skid Row in downtown. Um, and I spoke to that guy for maybe five minutes, but I was standing in his cell with him and it was a very intimate conversation. And he started telling me about murders that he got away with and was never convicted of. And, you know, he was an intense guy. And I could tell that he, he well, he told me that he doesn't go on the yard because somebody like that, I'm sure there are a lot of people who love to kill him. I mean, he's a cop. Cops don't do well in prison. They, they require protective custody. But all these people were already in protective custody and kind of loathing one another for the fact that the people they were stuck with were also PC, so, which is not politically correct. It's protective custody. So anybody else who has PC'd up, as they call it, must have done something or be somebody that is worth detesting in terms of convict logic and honor. So he was trapped in this world with people that he hated and who hated him. And then he wanted to talk to me and I felt like his essence, I just got a big whiff of it. It sort of went into me. Um, which is not to say that I went home and re-conjured the spirit of this actual man. No, you know, I made a fictional character. But I went home and eventually sat down to write this guy. And it's, um, I don't know, I really like the voice of it. It's like different than anything else I've written because it's done in the third person, but it's almost as if it's... Um, a covert first person, as if he's advocating for himself, but in the third person. And it's not something that I um, tried to facilitate consciously. The voice came out whole, and the character came out whole cloth, and I wrote all of his sections basically like in one sitting over, you know, or over the course of a couple of days, but it was like one stream, and there was Doc. Um, and part of it, I think, the reason that I liked him is the way he... His, he speaks in poetic association. Um, he's mostly thinking, which is like what people who are spend all their time in their cell are doing. And I guess he had a certain insouciance that I enjoyed riding into. So Doc is one of my favorite characters. And I also like that he's really challenging, I think, for people. Because I've had people come up to me and say, well... <sighs> I'm embarrassed to say this, but I really like that guy, even though he says despicable things and has done despicable acts, but he's still a human being. There's another character that is really complicated called Gordon Hauser, who's a teacher who comes in and out. I was really interested in how um, he didn't want to work in the juvenile prison. He, he worked there for six months and found it so depressing. And then he talked about 
or I don't know if um, you talked about it somewhere else, that people don't want to work in women's prisons because it feels so kind of psychically, it takes this psychic toll. Or is that just the idea of women's prisons because it's a lot of women thinking or in comparison to men's prisons? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on this, oh, but yeah. my feeling is that um, it's actually guards who don't want to work in okay. women's prisons. Okay. Um, they would rather work in men's prison. And I think part of that is um, hatred of women, but also, you know, they're, they're like the doxa, uh, if you will, among correctional officers in California is that in men's prisons, men have a certain respect for the rules. And if they break the rules, they're still following like a code of honor and they express themselves physically like that, you know, in, um, outbursts of terrific violence, which gives these men a certain kind of pride because they work in this dangerous place. And in a way they foster and facilitate a lot of violence in prison. They bet on, um, you know, rivalries among gangs and they let people out on the yard and let them fight and don't intervene basically as a spectator sport, as blood sport. I mean, that sounds really dramatic, but I've witnessed it. I've been there and seen it happen. Um, women's prison involves sensitivity training for correctional's office, which really angers them. And women argue and bicker and question the rules and want to know why. And they can't stand that. So it's partly their gloss. They see women as more whiny and emotional and men as more honorable and tough and terse. And, um, I think part of that is the culture that's been created in these two totally dysfunctional institutional frameworks where the men are seen as monstrous and the women are perceived to be babies. So the women are infantilized and the men are animalized. I know Mm. that's really stark, but I'm summing it up for your listeners. Yeah, that that definitely struck me once it was that, well, black and white, even though nothing is, you know, in the world, but um, it became kind of starkly clear. So Gordon feels, I know you um, dislike having him called naive because he's not really. Um, Why was it so important to have a character that was able to come and go, a free person who almost, um, like the prison life, seems to become the most important part of his life or the most significant part um, in the book? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great question. And, it, you know, your question includes a kind of observation in it about alienation that I think is um, insightful. Gordon is somebody who was working at another women's facility um, and took a liking to a prisoner in that facility and so was transferred due to what they call in the lingo over familiarity. Um, and so he's, he says he's, you know, kicked down the Central Valley like a can down a hallway, I think. And the way I shaped his perspective in the book is that because he screwed up in his job, 
he then is punished and reassigned to a place that is undesirable to corrections officers because it's another women's facility, but also um, is very isolated because it's way down the Central Valley. And he's a guy who was a grad student at Berkeley and like had a friend group, you know, and was a person in his late 20s who had other friends who were finishing their dissertations and going on the job market. And he, by financial desperation, after having failed out of graduate school, got this job as a teacher in the California Department of Corrections, which truly is always hiring and pays decently. So like a lot of his um, adulthood problems were solved by getting this job. But when he goes to work in Stanville, he's isolated and he is a thinking guy who had been living in a city who then moves to a cabin in the foothills above Stanville in order to have what he flatters himself by calling his Thoreau year. Um, but the reality of it is that he's going into this site of institutional violence every day and dealing with these women and trying to have genuine engagement with them, but he is smart enough to know that he cannot possibly understand their lives and that there's this wall between them. Some of it is class, although he's from a working class family, but not everybody working class, as I said before, is gonna commit an act of violence and wind up with a life sentence. And so certain aspects of these women and their lives is, are incomprehensible to him and also the social fabric of how they communicate. So he kind of becomes the butt of their jokes, which is quite true. Like when you walk into a prison as an outside person, you know, um, people are brilliant because all they have is their personality mm. as currency. So they are experts at charm, seduction, threats, humiliation, persuasion, etc. And he's out of his depths. It feels... I was going to say not Shakespearean, but in that way that when I read the book, I could imagine the the dialogue. I mean, obviously you have this fabulous dialogue, but oh, thanks. it just, yeah, just the potency of the insults and that specificity right. that you speak of really, really came through. But maybe there's a tension there also because... Um, for each one of these women who's in his class, they can, they can profit socially mm -hmm. um, in a moment by um, humiliating him or making fun of him, you know, or pulling some other stunt as part of the public theater of the classroom. But then privately for each one of them, having a one-on-one -on -one interaction with this guy from the free world could change their lives. At least that's the perception. So there is this dynamic in real life and also in my novel whereby people have many different selves and they are forced to do that. So you have a performative self that is useful in a group in order to establish yourself as um, being worthy of respect. But then you also have a private self that you present in the moments where you have an opportunity to talk to a free world person to try to persuade them 
to take pity on you. And that's a different kind of influence and seduction that somebody is trying to enact. And then somewhere underneath there is like the real person. And so I think that Gordon, he has this interaction with the narrator, Romy, and we see her side of it a bit and his side of it. And obviously they're different, but it's not to say that it's not genuine for either Mm. one. They're just different layers that are forced by the necessity of people's predicaments. I thought about that a lot, like those cells and how in prison there's potentially just so little time or a moment to be yourself. You know, like in our world here, you know, we're like, go to yoga and, you know, find your essence and just be. Or like we can walk down the street and just be in our thoughts, in ourselves. Whereas in this environment, do you, I just felt like there's never a chance. Even mentally, I was like, how would you even find yourself or have a moment of peace? But I don't know. Well, I don't know by comparison yeah. with like free world people. That's not... That's not what interests you either. Not so much. I mean, because I don't feel like confident to say what it means to have a self in the free world. I mean, some people would argue that, you know, we're defined by the logic of capitalism or whatever, but I know that um, people in prison are told there's an institutional language and lingo of the self, and they are constantly barraged with this idea of the self as blighted. You need to work on yourself. You need to have insight about your crime. You know, yourself, yourself, yourself. There's this idea of the self as being um, something you're in possession of that you need to renovate. But when you go to prison, many components of what socially is considered the self are stripped away. Like there's a classic book by the famous sociologist Irving Goffman called Asylums, where he talks about what he calls an identity kit. An identity kit is what they remove when you go into an institution like a monastery or Mm. a prison or, you know, a mental hospital where you no longer have your own clothes. You no longer have your own way of doing your hair. You don't have your friends. You're not able to signify socially who you are. So a lot of aspects of the self are actually stripped away for people who go to prison. But what I was talking about was more um, in terms of the self, it's shaped by necessity for people. So if you're in genuine need, that is a version of yourself Mm. where you are desperate to make an alliance or a friendship with this teacher because you're hoping he might do something for you in the outside world. And, you know, that is a phenomenon that's actually quite common with people in prison where their interactions with outside people are very much like this desperate, pressured, one-on-one opportunity where you're saying different things to that free world person than you ever would to another person inside prison. And it's not that one of those versions is more purely you or more honestly you. They are different modalities that are necessary to survival. I just had an epiphany then, even though it seems basic, but yes, like you're not working towards your most self self, all these parts and the extreme parts when pushed are all, all of us. I feel like often we're trying to get to our most pure self, but like, what the hell is that? Like you just keep 
I don't know. I think forever. I abandoned that idea yeah. a long time ago. I don't know. But, um, That's just a, a kind of an aside. But I have to admit, I hadn't heard of the Unabomber. I don't know whether it was because I grew up in Australia. Probably. Um, so I had to go Googling. Um, I mean, I got a sense of these diaries that that our teacher Gordon Hauser is kind of becomes obsessed with. But what was that connection? And when did you decide that he would increasingly become not enamored by these these diaries of this other violent man? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Gordon himself is not violent, but um, yeah. well, when he says that he's embarking on his Thoreau year. He sends a link to the cabin he's going to rent to his friend Alex. And Alex looks at the pictures of the cabin and writes back to him, your Kaczynski year. And in a way, it started as um, a covert nod to the work of an artist named James Benning, who um, has done this beautiful film called Stemple Pass that is about... Henry David Thoreau and Ted Kaczynski. And he, um, James Benning has two cabins on his property, each of which are an identical replica that he hand built. One is Ted Kaczynski's cabin from Montana and the other is Thoreau's cabin from Walden Pond. And I know James and he lives above the Central Valley and is an artist whose work I've admired for many, many years. And um, I visit him somewhat frequently, um, particularly when I'm on my way to or from the prisons. And I used to not really understand why he put those two people into dynamic play against or with one another. But I decided that I think it's like, it's an incredible thing to embark on this rumination of maybe what I would reduce to like the history and tradition of American transcendental thinking, nature, solitude, and to a degree with Thoreau, but very strongly in Ted case, Ted's case, um, misanthropic thinking. And James has copies of Ted Kaczynski's diaries. They are not in the book, I make them like they're part of a reader. No such reader exists. It just so happens that I had incredible access to the actual handwritten diaries, although they're written in numerical code. So I could not read them, but James had decoded them and he built a computer program to do it. And um, he reads from the diaries in this movie, Stemple Pass, but then he gave me all the diaries he'd decoded. And I started transcribing just particular passages that struck me and that I thought maybe Gordon would be struck by also because they begin as actually somewhat touching accounts of his solitude and his attempts to live freely in nature. And he's living off of rabbits, squirrels, and porcupines. And his diaries start as these accounts of his walks, um, in the deep, you know, woods and hills where he lived in Montana and then creep toward his anger when he sees his autonomy being constricted by other people's choices. Um, so when I, I started transcribing passages and I noticed that the cadence was so different than my own way of writing that there's no way I ever could have emulated his voice. And that really interested me. And so uh, to me, they're, they 
are almost a bit like putting photographs into a book. I'm not comparing myself to Sebald, but you know, when Sebald puts a postcard into a book, it's a real postcard, but then he builds an entire fictional realm around it. And I think that these um, kernels or traces of the real force a writer into an interesting engagement in their own imaginary realm. And those diaries were for me these traces of the real that I had to somehow assimilate. I want to go to a quote because it just reminds me um, of something you just said, but it's, it's from a, an interview you did, um, but it somehow feels like it might relate to this. It's, I don't believe that any fictional characters, no matter how memorable, how lifelike, can be talked about, even by their author, as if they were real people with actual psychological thickness and a reality beyond the edges of the book. I loved that so much because I feel like so often, I mean, I've probably done it to you about five times in our conversation, kind of may, you know, we want you to tell us about what these people you've created would do in another circumstance. Right. Why do we want writers to explain their characters to us? I don't know. (laughs) I I really don't know, actually. Um, Yeah, I felt like it was a useful opportunity for me to try to say something about that in the interview, which was not at all to disrespect the questions of the interviewer, but more to think, oh, hey, you know, I actually can't answer questions about, as you said, um, the hypothetical psychology of a character and how they might behave in a different situation. Um, I'm thinking of something that Fred Moten said when I saw him give a lecture a while back. He was talking about um, authors describing their characters as surprising them, you know? And he was making fun of that idea a bit. Like um, Everyone says that. They're like, oh, I was writing it. Oh, they did this. Right. So I think but- in a certain way, um, and, and maybe it's the structure of the interview format and the author's desire to please, but they seem to go along with this myth. And I think... I can't remember who he was, what author he was talking about, and maybe I don't want to say if I do remember who it was. But he was emulating somebody saying, "You know, I that just completely shocked me when my character did that." And then Fred Mountain said, "Like you weren't shocked, you (laughs) created that, you wrote it." Oh, that's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much. What a gorgeous conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. There's a reason, obviously, why Rachel's work is so incredible. And it's part of it, I'm sure, is because of the, you know, rigorous research she did. And I found it so interesting to hear about the lengths to which she goes to get the story right um, and how she actually had friends in prison and wanted to tell their side of the story. If any of you have any experiences you'd like to share, please get in touch at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. And as always, if there are any authors you'd love to hear from on the podcast, please get in touch and I'll do my best. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.